magical about this. I'm simply going to do it because I would like you to sort of picture what I'm reading. That's all I'm saying, and sometimes it helps to not have distractions. So if you're willing, I'm going to read to you from the book of Revelation uh, just quickly. So I invite you to shut your eyes. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except him. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Who is Jesus? Who is it that we worship? Who is the Lord that demands our obedience? Who is the one that will make every knee bow? Who is the one who laughs at the schemes of nations and rulers? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not a baby in a manger. He is not still nailed to the cross. He is not a long-haired, peace-loving hippie like some want him to be. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will reign forever. Amen? Why start this way? Well, because that's where our passage takes us this week. And it's important, really important, to understand that, yes, Jesus took on flesh, but he is now risen and glorified and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And we want to grasp that truth deep in our hearts. So we're working through the Gospel of John here. This morning we're up to chapter 17. Uh, if you have your Bible there, we're up to chapter 17, verses 1. I've broken up into a few little sections. So we're going to start with chapter 17, and I'm going to read 1 to 5. So chapter 17, 1 through to 5. Of John. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you since you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you sent, Jesus Christ. I've glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Amen. Jesus spoke these things. That's how our passage starts. Now, what things? What things is it referring to? What things did Jesus speak? Well, it's everything we've just read from chapters 14 to 16, the upper room discourse. So we're just shifting gears slightly here. Chapters 14 to 16 have been 
all of the final things that Jesus wanted to impart to his disciples. I'm about to go. What are the crucial things I want you to grasp before I leave? So that's been chapters 14 to 16. And now we shift gear and instead he's about to start praying for his disciples in chapter 17. So that's what we're referring to, all of what we have been looking at. And so he begins in this little shift by reminding us again of who Jesus truly is. As we said, he's been saying, my hour has not yet come, up till now in the Gospel of John. But then he shifted to, my hour is soon, my hour is almost here, and now he says, my hour has come. The hour for his death, the hour for his crucifixion, when he would die for your sin and mine, the time of separation from the Father, the darkest and yet greatest moment the world has ever known when the righteous would die for the unrighteous, that by his wounds we would be healed. Right? This is what he's referring to. But there are a couple of things in these five verses, a couple of major focus points I want us to think through. First one, in the glory of the Son and of the Father. That's what we read there. Glorify your Son, says Jesus, that I may glorify you. I have glorified you on earth, says Jesus. Now glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world existed. Now to give someone glory is to praise them, to celebrate them. Acknowledge their greatness, right? So we say when someone's achieved sporting prominence, we would say they've won glory. Or any other achievement, you would say they have won glory. It's to celebrate worth and achievement. Now this is certainly true of Jesus and the Father. When Jesus dies on the cross, paying the penalty of sin, it crowns Jesus and the Father in the glory, the worth of their grace and love. Who can love like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Who can suffer for their enemies like Christ? Who can forgive their enemies like Christ? The Father who chose and sent the Son is glorified in the Son's perfect obedience and sacrifice and then the father glorifies the son what glory is Jesus waiting for longing for well according to the passage his glory restored his majesty might and power the glory that he always had from before the creation of the world, which was veiled while he was on earth. Otherwise, if we looked on Christ, we would have died. But having defeated sin and death, Christ has now risen to the right hand of the Father, where he is once again clothed in the glory which he has had for all eternity, the majesty and power whom before all people will kneel. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Father, clothe me in the glory again. This is why I started the passage in the book of Revelation 
It's a much closer view of Jesus in his glory than Jesus in the Gospels where his glory is veiled. My point is, church, don't have a small view of Jesus. Lift your eyes to the King of glory. Right? The one whose glory is as radiant or more radiant than the sun. Now that's the first point that Jesus is making, and, and I hope no one struggles with it. It's accepted by all, celebrated, and rejoiced. The second point is a lot more controversial. Some of you will struggle with it, but it's the Word of God. Jesus says, in eternity past, you gave me authority over all people. In other words, you gave me the role of death, resurrection, and exaltation. Why, according to the passage? So that Jesus could give eternal life to those people that the Father had given him. Who will be saved? Who will have the debt of their sin paid by Jesus? Only those that the Father gave to the Son. Those who before the creation of the world were chosen by God. Now we've seen this before in John. In John 10:14, we read that Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know his voice. This means you were saved not because you chose God, but because he chose you. And he did not choose you because you would choose him. That would make you responsible for your own salvation. He did not choose you because you were good or worthwhile. He chose you by his pleasure and his grace to save worthless people who deserve damnation. That is the sovereign grace of God. What does it mean? It means God is truly the only one worthy of praise because salvation is completely of God. Now, we could do this all day, but let me show you the exact same thing from the Word of God said another way. This is Acts 13, 48. Scribble it down if you want to look it up later. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the Word of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Note the order. Those who were appointed believed. Those who were chosen by the Father before the creation of the world, those appointed believed. Why do we have baptisms today? Because they were chosen by God. And that should be a joy to our hearts. Because we are saved by God's choice and God's will and we cannot cast off or lose our salvation because we were chosen by God to glory. Now that is a wonderful thing to celebrate together this morning. Now this idea is going to continue very strongly throughout this passage, which is why I'm bringing it in so strongly now. You will see it again and again. Let it bring you in worship to the God who is sovereign over our salvation. All right, so that takes us to the next bit. John 17, verses 6 to 8. John 17, verses 6 through to 8. I have revealed your name to the people you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. They have believed that you sent me. Now Jesus says, I have revealed your name 
to the people you gave me out of the world. What does revealing God's name mean? Right? Because it, it kind of doesn't sound that impressive, does it? Right? You know, let me reveal my name to you all, Sam. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it just doesn't sound that impressive. So what is Jesus actually saying? What does it mean that he has revealed God's name? Well, God declared that he is I am. God is. He has no beginning, no end. No limit. No equal. He is. And all things are held together by him. Well, in Jesus... That name of God has been revealed in his life and ministry. Think about it. God's name is love. And the love of God was seen in Jesus. God's name is justice. And the justice of God was seen in Jesus. God's name is grace. And the grace of God is seen in Jesus. Jesus in his life and ministry has revealed the character of God and that is his name. It's intrinsic to who God is and Jesus said, I've revealed this to the ones you gave me. They have kept your word. They know for sure that I came from you because I've shared with them who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to give them his name. Now, Jesus has shown frustration with the disciples at times because they've failed to understand so many of the things that he has told them. But Jesus says here there's one truth that they are absolutely certain of and convinced of, that Jesus came from the Father. They may not yet understand the cross. They may not yet understand the full divinity of Jesus But as his life has revealed God, they are 100% certain that that is where he comes from. That's the one truth the disciples have gleaned with certainty, that Christ is from God, without grasping the full depth of everything else. All right, moving along. This is John 17, 9 to 13, just continuing our passage. John 17, 9 through to 13. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name, That you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, so that the scriptures may be fulfilled. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. All right, now we see a deep truth, something amazing here, something we really, really need to pay attention to something of utmost importance in this COVID world that we now live in. All those online, especially, please pay attention to what Jesus is telling us right now. Jesus prays for his disciples. 
He prays for them because the Father has given them to him and everything of the Father belongs to the Son and everything of the Son belongs to the Father. Don't ever doubt the deity of Jesus. He is fully God and all things of God the Father also belong to God the Son. Jesus then says he's leaving the world, but he is leaving the disciples in the world. They are going to have to make it without the constant physical presence of Jesus. So Jesus prays that the Father will protect them by his name. The name that the Father had given Jesus. What does that mean? What does it mean that they'll be protected by his name? Well, if we translate it directly, it means keep them in your name. Now, what did we just talk about? What was the name of God that we just spoke about? It is the character of God revealed. And Jesus prays that God the Father will keep his followers, keep his disciples in the character of God as revealed. Put another way, Jesus is the revelation of God. As he's revealed the character and nature of God, he's called the disciples to himself where they have learned to model themselves to follow after Jesus. And then the prayer of Christ is that after he departs, rather than going astray into worldliness, the Father will keep them in the modeling and following of Christ and the character of God revealed. But that is his prayer. A danger time is coming. I won't be there to, you know, knock them into shape. Father, keep them in the character of God. Keep them conforming to the word of God. So why does Jesus pray this prayer? What is the specific reason in this passage that he says, Father, keep them in the character of God? Well, he tells us in there, doesn't he? He says, so that they may be one as Jesus and the Father are one. That's an incredible prayer. As we focus on the revealed Word of God, as we adhere to its teaching, it binds us together in unity like the Father has with the Son. How's that for a promise? Right? As we focus on the character, the Word of God revealed, it binds us in the same unity of the Father and the Son. Think about this. Necessarily, if we are not bound in unity, then we are not binding ourselves to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Because if we are, the result is the unity of the Father and Son. So if we don't have the unity of the Father and Son, then we're not bound to the revelation of God. This is why it is a fallacy, an absolute lie to suggest, I am a strong Christian but I don't go to or need the church. Absolute lie. The church is the unity of believers and your not going is the evidence that you are not adhering to the revelation of God. That is what this passage says. If you are remote, if you're elderly now and you can't get to church, praise God for our live stream. 
But if it's easier to just watch online than come, then what you are saying is, I'm not adhering to the revelation of God. How do you submit to elders online? How do you use your gifts for the benefit of the body online? How do you love one another and be known as his disciples online? How do you take communion, which is a meal to be shared in unity, online? The word church is a translation of the word ecclesia, which means gathering. The people of God gathered together is the church, and this is who Jesus in Ephesians says died to bring together. To reject that, to turn up occasionally, is to say I'm not a part of the saved people of God. If this is you, it is simply a reflection of the denial of Christ, the love of self, and Western worldly individualism that makes you justify this behavior. Repent. Come back to the love of God. Conformity to His revelation And that brings you into unity with his people, right? This is what Christ is saying. Father, keep them in my truth, and that truth will bring them together in unity. If you don't have that unity, then you are moving outside the revelation of God. Church, we need to own that deeply. In an age of world that lacks commitment, the church should stand in stark contrast because we're being conformed to the image of God. So Jesus says that he protected his disciples by keeping them to the revelation of God, the truth of God while he was on the earth, and none of them fell away. None is, that is, except Judas Iscariot. Why does Jesus mention this? Because he's perfectly fulfilled the will of the Father. He has held all those that the Father has given him. If Jesus had lost one, then he would have failed his mission. That would be a serious allegation indeed, would it not? So Jesus points out that Judas was lost, but this was in accordance with the Scripture. That Judas was raised up for this purpose, as was Pharaoh in Egypt, as we see in Romans 9. Judas was not lost, he fulfilled part of the sovereign plan of God, and so Jesus' mission was perfect, not failed. That is the point of what Christ is saying. And then in verse 13, Jesus gives us a second reason for him saying these things. The first one was that we would dwell in the unity of the Father and Son together. And secondly, that we will have Christ's joy. As we adhere to the revelation of God in Jesus, as we follow him, as we conform to his character... We are filled with a profound joy that the world cannot take from us. This joy comes from obedience to the Word of God. It comes from not grieving the Spirit as we seek to honor God. Church, if you lack joy, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we putting from the world ahead of Jesus? Here's the thing. If anything from the Word of God challenges you or upsets you this morning or any other morning, I guarantee you it's not where you are being obedient, right? It's not where you are being obedient. If anything challenges you or upsets you, it directly correlates to where you are disobeying the revealed character of God. 
Therefore, it is God putting his finger on an area that you need to repent of. Right? This is what we need to think about when we're upset. It's God challenging you against his revealed will and character. Now, the final bit of our passage, John 17, 14 to 17. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. If we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus has prayed that we will hold to the revelation of God in himself and through his word. That's what we've been looking at. When we are obedient to that truth, we will experience the joy of communion with the Lord. That's really what our passage has been saying up to this point, right? That when we adhere to the truth of God found in Jesus and God's word, then we will experience the joy that overflows from that obedience. But it will also have a less positive impact. Obedience to God and his word means hatred with the world. Why? Well, because the world is under the temporary rule of the evil one, Satan. The world and all of its systems and all people who have not yet been born again are by default following Satan. He's the temporary ruler. When you are born again, you are born into the rule of Jesus. You now have a new king. The world follows one ruler, and once you become a Christian, you now follow the lordship of Jesus. The world hated Jesus because his life and teaching exposed people's sin. As we are obedient to the revealed truth of God's character in Christ and in his word, then people will hate us because we are living out the character of Christ and sharing the same teaching. So Jesus says, if they hated and persecuted me, they will do the same because I'm your Lord and you're living for me. The truth is we are not of this world. And the world will know it when you are kept in his name. Let me explain. When people are sinning and rebelling against God, maybe an attitude, self-promotion, self-seeking, selfish, and you refuse to participate, people won't like it. When people are slandering, backstabbing, lying, and you won't participate, they will despise you for it. When people are getting drunk, being sexually immoral, and you have the strength in Christ to not participate, they will despise you for it. When you tell them that their only hope of salvation, that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved other than Jesus, they will either despise you for it 
or be born again. You see, this is the other part of what Jesus says here. And this is critical. We are not of this world. We have a different king. But Jesus does not pray that we be taken out of the world. He makes that very clear. You see, we have a mission to reach the lost, to tell them the good news. Your mission, church, is to walk headfirst into the darkness with the light of Christ. Not to hide from the darkness, to walk into the darkness with the light of Christ. If your tendency is to sit around moaning about how the old, how this world is not like the old days, it's not like it used to be back in the good old days, there were no good old days. People were better at hiding their sin. It's all it was. Everyone was still just as lost, just as damned, and needing salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. Amen? Stop whinging about the old days and get out there in this day and share the good news. Right? That is the call of God. Right? I praise God for faithful saints, of many of them here. I saw, uh, I saw Graham and Estelle, I think, here this morning. They're still out there. They're still a part of Gideon's. They're still putting Bibles in motel rooms. They're still sharing the good news with people on the street. They're still touring up around North Queensland. They're like 150 years old. They're still doing it, right? They're still telling people about Jesus. Or maybe you've got a different tendency. Maybe it's to sit around moaning. Oh, it's definitely the end times. Oh, Jesus is definitely coming back soon. I've read the signs. You and like four million other people over the last 2,000 years. But anyway, stop it. What does Jesus want you to be doing if he's coming back shortly? Be about your master's business, telling people the good news before it's too late. If he's coming back, these are the last moments for people to repent and put their faith in Jesus. So Jesus says, no, I don't want you taken out of the world. I want you to be a light in the darkness telling people to put their hope in Jesus Christ. Right? That is who you are, church. Our task is not to withdraw from the world or to be confused with the world, but to be a light in the dark. That is who the church is, sanctified by the truth, being made into God's image, held there by the Father. We live obedient lives under the Lordship of Christ, which shines a light to a dark world, and many will despise it, but some will be saved, and Jesus will be glorified. That's the church. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you pray that we would continue to be conformed to the character of God revealed in Jesus, in your word. Lord, thank you that you pray that as we walk after you, we'd be drawn together as brothers and sisters in the same unity of the Father and the Son. 
Lord, that as we are obedient to your word, we'll experience the joy of Christ. And as the world despises us, as the world rejects us, Lord, you've said, keep going. You'll be with us to the end of the age. Be a light in that darkness. Share the gospel. And we'll see people come to eternal salvation. Lord, may we fix our gaze on you. And in doing so, be filled with a desire for your mission and the proclamation of the word. Lord, may we not be a church that hides from the world. Lord, may we be a church not stained by the world, but in the world with a light that shines the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.